HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night. I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. Because he works all night and he works all day. I cut down trees. I eat my lunch. I go to the lavatory. <laughs> Wednesdays I go shopping and have buttered scones for tea. <laughs> Happy Sunday, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Anne Saxelby, and our show is sponsored today by Fairway Market. Um, You just heard a little excerpt from a Monty Python sketch, which we thought would be fitting for today's show. Uh, My guest today is Diana Pitet, who is um, a part-time cheesemonger and a full-time cheddar uh, what would you say, addict, enthusiast, I would go um, enthusiast. Ad- yeah. advocate? <laughs> yeah. um, so Diana's agreed to come on the show with me today to talk about her love of cheddar, where it came from, what it's led her to around the world, and also kind of to talk a little bit about the history of cheddar cheese, because up until just a couple years ago, for 400 years running, it was the most popular cheese in America. Um, so thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, totally. Um, so why why cheddar? What in a in a nutshell? Why cheddar? Um, uh, it does seem a little bit comical to be infatuated and dedicated to cheddar cheese because it's definitely not a gourmet cheese. Um, but I'm interested in cheddar for several reasons. Uh, one is sort of a per, uh, is rooted in personal reasons. Uh, both my parents are English, and so I kind of relate to it because it is an English cheese. And when I was a child growing up in New Jersey, my father would bring home for me cheddar cheese from the supermarket because that's basically where he bought cheese. What, the, was it the white cheddar or the yellow cheddar? Uh, well, he would buy me different kinds, and that was the thing. Each week when he would do the weekly shopping, he would bring home a different cheddar cheese, and he would try to find me the strongest one, the sharpest one. And so it was... A part of my awakening to realize that foods didn't always taste the same, that one product called cheddar cheese could come in different flavors and consistencies and styles and sort of open myself up to this idea that um, there was variety in foods because at that time, the 1970s and early 80s, is um, we were all just wanting consistency in food. Sure. So the package always says cheddar. You know, it's funny when I was a kid um, and I would go to the supermarket with my mom, 
she would buy me um, white American cheese, which was like seemed exotic and cool because it wasn't, you know, the the orange kind. Mm-hmm. And so it was special. Instead of getting the craft stuff, um, you know, from the from like the whatever prepack department, we would go to the deli and they would slice the white <laughs> American cheese. And for me, that was like the biggest treat. I would always get a slice right there. And um, actually, it's funny for me, it was the opposite. I was always really excited to get the orange pre-sliced cheese because I was convinced that it had more flavor to it than the sort <laughs> of uh, the anemic white looking sliced cheese. And that's what I wanted on my tuna melts and grilled cheese sandwiches. So that's funny. So you always loved cheese from from childhood. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. I was an early an early addict. <laughs> um, and so from there, I mean, you have spent a significant part of your life sort of traveling to study cheddar cheese. Can you tell me what are some of the places you've traveled to? Sure. Well, it's only really been in the last 10 years that I've been traveling the globe in search of cheddar cheese or figuring out what cheddar cheese is. Um, Of course, my travels take me to England because that's where cheddar cheese originated. But it's also taken me to Australia, uh, specifically Tasmania, where some traditional cheddar cheeses are made. It's taken me to New Zealand, which is a big part of the export market of cheddar. Uh, It's taken me up to Scotland, over to Wales, um, and... uh, and of course, around England, well, around England and the States as well. It's fun. so kind of everywhere, you know, where the English had uh, a sort of foothold. Um, Australia, you know, obviously, um, the US, obviously. Well, when I did forget to, uh, forget to mention Canada as well, a big, a big presence of cheddar in Canada, of course. Interesting. I wonder why cheddar never made it to like India. You know, that was like the British had a huge. uh... (laughs) Well, that actually is an interesting point, because I think that cheddar really took hold where the English colonized where there was no native dairying tradition. You think in India has had a long tradition with milk and have had their own cheeses, of course, rennetless cheeses because of um, dietary prohibitions against rennet. Um, So the English couldn't go in and sort of create a a cheese tradition because it was already there. But if you think about North America and you think about um, Australasia, there was no dairying tradition because there really weren't any um, dairying animals there. It all had to be exported uh, or imported rather into those areas. Now I read, I was reading, um, you know, the paper that, that you wrote um, uh, while I was sort of preparing for the show. And I thought that that was really interesting because you were talking about basically how cheddar cheese over the years has morphed into what we now know as American cheese in those, you know, the little the little squares that I loved so much when I was a kid. And so I started thinking to myself, I was like, what would a native North American cheese be? And, you know, they're really, we wouldn't really have cheese in our diets. It would either have to be some sort of like a, I don't know, one of those weird vegan nut-based cheeses, <laughs> you know, because, right. um, or who knows, I, I guess we had horses here, you know, or by or buffalo. I don't know. It, right. would, it would be something, to, I don't know what it would be, but it would be crazy. And horses aren't even native to North America either. There really weren't any, really any dairying animals or any dairying culture at all until Colombian contact. Um, by the way, ho- the horse thing, I know that must sound totally weird to all of our listeners out there. But while I was I was reading some, I think it was uh, Paul Kinstadt's book about different animals that you can make cheese from. I was astonished to learn that you can make horse milk cheese and that some Amish people, I think in Wisconsin or somewhere in the Midwest, do that. And I was like, wow, that's... Uh- <laughs> well, I did know about horse cheese uh, or horse milk cheese 
but uh, recently my manager at the at the gourmet market in New Jersey where I work was asking why there aren't any pig milk cheeses. Did Paul Kinstead bring that up in his book at all? Oh gosh, I don't know if he did, but I've gotten that question so many times too, and I just feel like you know it's it's pretty obvious if you are what you eat. You know, you don't want to be making pig milk cheese. But you could uh, sort of like, I guess we're now going off topic of cheddar cheese, but you could feed a... <laughs> pig, de- pig cheddar, <laughs> cheese of the future. Why not? Um, you could give a dedicated diet to um, pigs, just like, you know, there's two different kinds of sheep. You have sheep for wool and then sheep for dairy, and you give them very different diets. When you're using a sheep for producing cheese, you treat it like a little mini cow and give it a special diet. But I'm wondering with pigs, there must be some sort of protein profile in the milk or fat. But I keep I keep wanting to look that up, and I just haven't. So maybe next, maybe it would be an interesting show as all the different animals that cheese could come from, but doesn't. <laughs> it's like the, uh, back on Sesame Street. It's like you see the picture of the animal, and then they're like you know draw next through it or something. It's like which of these does not belong? All I know is that milking a pig would not be a fun chore. No, no, no. Well, so talking about mixed breeds of animals and using um, animals for, you know, different purposes, meat or milk or wool or whatever the case may Mm be. So that sort of brings us back to the origins of cheddar in the United States, because in your paper, you talk about um, the early dairying industry. And originally, when people came to settle here, they would have to bring certain goods with them to kind of ensure that they were going to be okay. And one of those things was was their own cheese. They would bring their own supply of hard cheese from England, along with, uh, you know, fishing nets and um, different things that they would need to sort of survive and and have food for themselves. And then eventually you were talking about the first um, breeds of cows that came across, and they were kind of, uh, you know, out of necessity, crossbreeds in that they would be used for meat and for dairy. And so originally the, the, the dairying breeds weren't you know, incredibly good, but people would make a lot of cheese at home. Right. I mean, primarily cheese would be something that was done for yourself and for your own consumption. But actually, from very early on, the um, colonists in um, New England were exporting cheese to the southern colonies, which were engaged in cash crops and not doing subsistence farming. And also they were... Cash crops like tobacco and corn and... okay. Yeah, and things like that. So they weren't making food that they could be eating necessarily. It was all sort of food um, products or agricultural products that would be for export only for making money. And then also, too, in the West Indies, um, sugar cane production and things like that, um, there was very little agriculture that was being grown for local consumption. And so cheese was a major export to these areas, the southern colonies and to um, the West Indies. And why was cheddar a good cheese for export? Why was that a why was that a good choice? Because, you know, people ask me all the time at the store, they're like, you can't uh, this I, I would I would buy a piece of cheese right now but I'm going to be traveling with it and so I feel like cheddar addresses those questions it sure does and should point out too that this cheese that was being um, exported to the southern colonies and to the West Indies was probably not called cheddar I'm not sure what it was called probably just cheese um, and it was just a generic English hard style cheese it wasn't until I think after the industrial sorry after the American Revolution that when um, in America was actually exporting English hard style cheeses to England itself that cheddar started being the name for these uh, hard English style cheeses um, cheddar is great for export, um, for getting from the countryside to urban centers because it is a big, hard, 
durable cheese that's meant to last. It has low moisture, which means that uh, it's not going to spoil as easily. And since it's big and hard, uh, it's not going to bruise or get all banged up like a little dainty brie or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, it can take a little kicking. It sort of it makes me think about uh, the regulations that UPS has, that when you ship something by UPS, you should feel comfortable being able to drop it from your waist to the floor. And if you don't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, send it that way. <laughs> and a cheddar cheese, uh, it can take a little banging around. Judy Shad, who's a really hilarious um, cheesemaker from uh, Greenville, Indiana, she has a a goat dairy called Capriol, Um, and they ship a lot of cheese around the country, and they used to have that written on their, like, wholesale, you know, price list and information. They had a kick-the-box policy where, um, you know, if your cheese arrived damaged um, because of UPS and all these, like, you know, ridiculous regulations like you were just talking about, they would literally have people kick and destroy the boxes to prove that like it had somehow, you know, gotten messed up in, in transit. But so those are the fresh little goat cheeses that, right. you know, are are the dainty ones that you were talking about. But cheddar, you can pretty much beat the crap out of and it'll be OK. More or less. I mean, uh, like cheese is still a sensitive product. And so even now you'll see cheese, uh, cheddar cheese in these 50 pound um, wheels that, do show some bruising and whatnot. So they're not totally indestructible, but they are definitely more hardy than little tender goat's cheeses. So we're going to have to take a break in just a few minutes. But before we do, maybe this would be an interesting time to talk about um, gender and, and cheese. Mm. Um, because those dainty cheeses versus the big cheddars, mm-hmm. um, you know, cheese making in the U.S. started... Um, She's making traditionally as a woman as a woman's job. True. Because, you know, you were talking about the division of labor in your paper on a farm and the men generally do the outside work, the women do the inside work, which is of course, you know, the cheese making falls under the second category. Um but there are certain cheeses and and so I guess we'll back it up. So if you're talking about France or, you know, um Italy or any other place, there are little cheeses like camemberts or these little delicate goat cheeses mm-hmm. um, that are just sort of beautiful and sort of nitpicky and, you know, um, these fussy, maybe fussy. Yeah. And just require a lot of care and nurturing right. and attention mm-hmm. um, that were traditionally made by women. But there are other cheeses, mostly big ones like Comte, mm-hmm. um, Gruyere, Parmesan and cheddar that are more like masculine cheeses. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about how cheese making, how cheddar fits into that whole trajectory, like becoming a man's thing in, in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, it, even though these cheeses are big and heavy, and I would say predominantly in the realm of men, when I was traveling around uh, Britain looking at cheddar cheese production, it's really men in the dairy because these cheeses are heavy. I mean, it's, the wheels themselves are 50 pounds. That's without any whey in them. And so when there's still a lot of moisture in these new cheeses, they're like 70 pounds in these big, heavy molds. And it is backbreaking work. And even cheddaring the cheese, which is a process um, of how the curd is manipulated, that it's actually sweat-inducing too. It's a very physical cheese to make. But it was also in the realm of women. Women did make these cheeses historically, and it's um, become more of a men's men's making, you know, men man made cheese. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because of maybe now the scale um, at which this cheese is made. In the past, maybe 
a farm would make just a couple of wheels a day, maybe just one wheel of cheddar a day. But now you're going to places that are making 16 to 30 cheeses a day. And so it just becomes a bigger operation. And so you need a lot of a lot more muscle power around to make these cheeses. And so that's even on the farmstead dairies that they're making th- that many cheddars. Uh, yeah, the ones, uh, the small ones, um, let's say like Keynes, Montgomery's, they make about sixteen, you know, twelve to twenty wheels a day. Maybe um, at Quick's Cheddar in Devon, they maybe make about thirty or so wheels a day. Um, but it. Uh, these cheeses, even though they're big, um, they are fussy in the sense they do need a lot of attention in the beginning stages of their making. So uh, on the first day, you're putting curds into um, molds, which is a lot of heavy work. And then maybe a day or a day or two later, you have to dump them out of the molds and wrap them in muslin and then put them back in the molds. And it's it's a lot of um, a lot of work goes into it. So the dudes can be nurturers too. Cheese is a labor of love across the board. True. Um, Well, I think we're going to take a quick break on cutting the curd. And when we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit more about American cheese. I want to talk about American cheese as kind of a, this strange cultural document um, and what it says about, I don't know where, where we've gone from cheddar and where we can go back to in the future. So uh, stay with us on Cutting the Curd. Always look on the bright side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. And always look on the bright side of life. Come on! Always look on the right side of life. For life is quite absurd, and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dan Saxelby, and uh, joining me today is Diana Pitet, cheddar expert. I'm going to call her an expert. Okay. She doesn't say that. Um, I should also mention that our show today is being produced um, by Jack Insley and engineered by Nat Wiener. Um, so thanks to them for dutifully tagging all of our all of our cheddar speak. Um, so American cheese. Mm. I don't know. I just have to go on this quick aside because. Well, no, I guess it's not. I guess it's kind of a logical progression. So we're talking about cheddar as a man's thing. Right. Um, how how cheddar making has become a sort of more masculine cheese, um, and cheddar was really one of one of the first, if not the first. Mechanized cheese making processes in the world. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, right. Right here in New York State. Yes, in, in Rome, New York. I think the date is 1851 uh, by Jesse Williams and his son. He developed this idea of associated dairying, where instead of just um, using the milk from your farm to make cheese, you pool milk together from a bunch of different farms. And by doing that, you can benefit benefit from the economies of scale. It's just a bigger operation, so each stage is a little bit cheaper. Also, you can get a more consistent product because you're 
just making it in one location instead of lots of cheeses coming from a lot of different locations. And the um, this way of making cheeses was really applauded because it uh, helped alleviate women from the really painstaking process of making cheese on a daily basis. I mean, we're, we're joking about dainty cheeses and whatnot, but all cheese making is incredibly grueling and just um, one of many chores that has to be done on a farm. And so this was seen as a way for women to free themselves a little bit from their daily chores, even have the opportunities for education and things like that. But as an uh, well, offshoot of that, though, was that it became a very masculine field and as a result was geared up towards capitalism and taking a lot of nuance out of cheesemaking and seeing it more, of, more as an industry. And even in places like France and Switzerland, where there are co-ops for pooling milk, mm-hmm. like for Comte, I know that, you know, there's there are these local little fruitiers. And so everyone, all the farmers bring their milk to the fruitier and the fruitier makes the cheese. But even then, all the cheese is still made by hand. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about here is a cheese now cheddar becoming sort of a, yeah, the, them changing the process of cheese making so that Hands aren't doing the work, but machines are doing the work. Well, initially, though, it really was still sort of a hand, um, a handmade cheese, as much as we call a cheese handmade these days. It was just a bigger scale of it. Um, but now you're right. Now it's just really gotten sort of perverse that you have big, huge mechanized dairies that are turning out in a day what small producers produce in a year. I mean, it's just incredible the scale of which some of these cheddar cheeses, especially cheddar, are being made now. So how did we go from how do we get from from there to here? Um, what was kind of uh, the was there a turning point in the mechanization of cheesemaking where all of a sudden? I don't know, I guess I'm asking, how did cheddar become American cheese? Um, Well, I think cheddar was always American cheese in the sense that as soon as it came to American soil, it um, was going through a process of Americanization like everything else. We have to remember that when the English came to the New World, they didn't stop being English. They viewed themselves as English. They named streams and mountains, English names. Um, And so also with them, they brought their English cheeses. They weren't going to find any native cheeses in the New World. They weren't going to invent a new cheese. So the, the people living in the New World were English and their cheeses were English. But through time and through Western migration in the Americas, um, English cheese started becoming American just as just in the same way as the English colonizers became American too. I always think that that's kind of funny. I always think about the Southern dialect. You know, there's Southern, people with Southern accents and how at some point that came from people with British accents. Mm-hmm. It's hard to wrap your head around and it's hard to wrap your head around, you know, having a slice of Montgomery or Keene's cheddar and then having a slice of American cheese and thinking that those had anything to do with one another to begin with. Oh, I know. And uh, they, they're so antithetical to one another. This beautiful farmstead product, the Keens and Montgomery's that you're mentioning, that taste of the seasons, taste of grass, taste of history, taste of place. They're just amazingly complex and delightful cheeses. And then you taste an American cheddar or an American cheese, which is made so it doesn't taste of a time or a place that it just sort of tastes the same wherever you have it whether or not it's yellow in wisconsin or white up in vermont it's all pretty much going to be the same well it's very funny that you say that because yeah i was thinking about you know if if 
American cheese craft, you know, American cheese is kind of a cultural document. I was thinking to myself last night, what does American cheese say about us? And I started to think about the different, you know, sort of mm. facets of that cheese. I said, okay, so it's wrapped in plastic. Sometimes each individual slice is wrapped mm. in plastic. So it kind of plays to our like germ phobia sort of like standardization of everything and wanting everything to be sort of protocol and clean in, in quotation marks. Um, it's kind of overly sweet. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny, my, my business partner is, a, is from France originally, and um, he says that about Americans, that, you know, we're, when he first came to the U.S. and he was doing business with people, he would have meetings with people and they would say, oh, that's great, that's amazing, we're totally on board, let's make it happen. And he would think that he had a deal, only to realize that, you know, Americans can kind of say that sometimes, but then maybe mean it or not. You know, it mm-hmm. kind of, uh, we're kind of, I don't know, we can be sort of overly positive, overly little, zealous, overly, ze- yeah, overly sweet. Um, it's square. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you saying we're square? We might be square. I don't know. I hope not. I think, well, you know, we're moving back in the other direction, but maybe for, for a little while, the cheesemakers are square. It's convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we typically, Americans don't make much time for food production, food eating, Um and, you know, like you said, it's orange and it has this kind of, uh, I don't know, I was thinking about our kind of penchant for, I don't know, dressing things up on the surface, whether it's, you know, that like that weird show, nip and tuck, plastic surgery, beauty enhancement, kind of parading fake things as real things, you know, I think that that says a lot about it. Um, but it's also kind of a, an interesting thing because as you're talking about is, I don't know, people came to the u.s they originally had their own food cultures mm-hmm. that eventually became squashed and processed and emulsified into this weird foodscape that we live in now mm-hmm. and american cheese is kind of a perfect i feel like example of that because it's kind of every nuance of ethnicity or you know uh individuality has kind or of been or, or terroir has been removed from it mm-hmm. and it's just kind of this 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 thing melting you know, pot of cheese it's a little yeah yeah and what do we do with this american cheese we melt it we make tuna melts we make uh, grilled cheese we make i don't know velveta you know just that's what it's for um yeah, I think all those things that you're saying are spot on. And that is one of the chief reasons why I'm interested in cheddar teas is because I think that there's not quite any other food product out there or any other cheese that can show the extreme difference between a farmstead artisanal product and a processed one. You have someone try a cloth-bound cheddar cheese, whether or not from England, Scotland, Wales, Vermont, or California, and you try a craft single or just even any other sort of block cheddar and there's just a profound difference and you can see from that the sacrifices that Americans have made for taste and con- um, have made um, they, they've sacrificed taste for convenience and bounty and for of plenty and uh, there's some great benefits of it that we can buy food pretty cheaply but of course it has other costs as well so yeah, I feel like American, it, it's like our food identity crisis, mm-hmm. the American cheese. And that's why I feel like by telling the story of cheddar cheese, you are capturing that identity crisis that Americans are having with food right now. And seeing, too, as I mentioned, just the costs that come from this of getting these mass-produced foods, that not only is there cost in taste, but there's cost to 
our landscape, our environment, our health, all these things. Yeah. And so now there's, in the past what, in the past 20 years in America, and probably a little bit longer than that, maybe 30, 40 years in Britain, there's been a move back in the other direction. Right. Um, you know, it was funny. One of the things that I really enjoyed in your paper was um, when you were talking about the settlers that first came over, many of those people were not born dairy farmers. Um, they had come from a myriad of different experiences. Right and learn to make cheese because they kind of had to and because they just had to figure it out and be resourceful. And I feel like with the American cheesemakers now that I, you know, primarily deal with, that's also true that, you know, they haven't come from dairy backgrounds and um, they're just kind of trying to figure it out as they go and, uh, and make, you know, a, try to make a beautiful cheese that, you know, comes from comes from a place where they live right um that is very interesting now that this renaissance of cheesemaking in the states a couple points i want to make about that that you're right they're not coming from dairying backgrounds but they're getting involved in cheesemaking for a number of reasons one is a way to if they do come from a farming background to kind of keep the family farm it's also a resistance movement to this mass-produced food landscape that we have so what, again, what started as capitalist, you know, to get that cheese, you know, to make money for the colonies. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, being a cheesemaker today is pretty anti-capitalist. If yes. you're a farmstead cheesemaker, <laughs> I mean, you obviously want to sell your cheese and you have a small company, but it's not a way to like make a ton of money. No, it's not. There's many other reasons why you go into it. It's, you know, a love of your land. It's, again, a resistance movement. Um, it's a way to make a good quality of life for yourself that's not a part of being a corporate dupe, so to speak. Um, yeah, there's so many sort of things built into the meaning of cheesemaking today. And um, and with cheddar, since you've spent so much more time in England mm-hmm. and in um, sort of the British Isles, how have you seen, because they actually always had those traditions. They were kind of maybe after World War II, they got buried a little bit in the whole right. industrialization that happened to food across the board. But as opposed to us, who then have started cheesemaking again, basically from scratch, how mm-hmm. have those traditions survived in in? Um, England and and other places. Well, you know, you're right in pointing out that those cheesemaking traditions did continue to exist, but a lot of them really did die out. I mean, maybe a similar way to think about it is prohibition here in the States is that there was, uh, you know, wine making traditions here that with prohibition died out. And after it was repealed, um, people had to sort of learn how to make it all over again, even though some people are still making wine for church reasons and medicinal reasons. Um, it continued because there's some folks who just um, knew that that's what they always did, that's what their family did, continue making cheese, um, and that they did maybe have some customers that always supported them. But what's really happened in England is uh, the real cheese movement, uh, which was born on the back of the real ale movement and the real bread movement in the 1970s. And these were some efforts of some cheese-making pioneers to make sure that these old traditions came back and some new ones were discovered. And so, um, wow, that's am- that's amazing. And so Randolph Hodgson, who is the owner of Neil's Yard Dairy, right. he was kind of the guy, I feel like, who got the real cheese movement and saw these people who were still clinging, you know, tenuously to these amazing cheddar making traditions and sort of said to them okay we're gonna make a go of this yeah I mean that was something that really struck me during my travels was 
how everyone feels very much indebted to Randolph Hodgson and what he's done for British cheesemaking. And he's really had effect on cheesemaking throughout the world, I think, that people realize they can make cheese on a small scale, make it delicious, stay true to the milk, stay true to the land, stay true to your traditions, and you can make a go of it. And so you're talking about, it's funny, before we came out here to um, you know start the show, you were saying that now, in some ways, Britain is looking to America, um, particularly to maybe projects like uh, the cellars at Jasper Hill that um, Matteo Keeler and his brother Andy started um, for inspiration in cheddar making because they're making beautiful things like the Cabot cloth bound cheddar. And the ironic thing is that, you know, Matteo started his education Mm -hmm. with Randolph at Neil's Yard Dairy, has now come back and done his own thing here. And now there's a, there's kind of a beautiful kind of symbiotic thing happening. Yeah. People looking over both, looking across the pond from both sides, um, to help one another out. And I think that, for artisanal cheese making and good cheddar cheese making to continue, there needs to be uh, a camaraderie and a sharing of information. Because um, what's different about cheese making in the Americas and in the British Isles, I think it's a very solitary pursuit. It's very different from making Conte, for instance, where there's everybody in the valley is making Conte and can talk to each other about making Conte. But there's not that kind of tradition um, in America and the British Isles. So people from both sides of the pond and also down under need to be talking to one another to make the best product they can. So it's amazing. I was thinking about cheese as a product of globalization. When the British colonies were kind of, you know, spreading their tentacles all mm. over the world, cheese was kind of a common denominator, you know, that was that became a part of the, all of those different cultures. And food and globalization kind of went hand in hand because as people conquered foreign lands, they would bring their food traditions with them. I mean, yeah, even the Romans and the Greeks, same thing. Same thing, yeah. So now in like this crazy way, as kind of an, a statement against globalization yep. and homogenization, we have cheese making... Uh, you know, from Europe influencing cheese making in America, influencing cheese making in South America, in Australia, the common denominator is to have a good cheese mm-hmm. that tastes like the place where it comes from, that reflects the cheesemaker's experience. And they're all talking to each other. So I feel like cheese, in a way, is kind of like globalization at its best, if it's working that way. Yeah, that's a great way to th- yeah, a great way to think about it. Cheddar cheese is the world's most popular cheese. And as a result, there's folks all over the world making it and can talk to another about it. Well, I want to go eat some of it. All this talk about cheese has made me hungry. <laughs> um, so, well, I think actually it's probably a good time to do that. I think we're, at, we're unfortunately out of time today. But um, thank you so much for joining me on the show. And uh, let's follow this up. Let's yeah, well, thank you so much for giving me a venue to talk about cheddar cheese. Um, see you next week on Cutting the Curd. Could replace that good old tasty English cheddar cheese. Sunday roast with Yorkshire pudding, rhubarb tart is very good, but we prefer that good old cheddar cheese. Round the world you get exotic foods. Wash it down with different kinds of booze. But whether you're in London or north of Kathmandu, there is only one thing I'll recommend to you. Porridge oats and curry goats, haggises will get my vote. They prefer that good old cheddar cheese. A piece of steak carved off the rump ain't half as nice as a pint of scrump and a girt big lump of English cheddar cheese. 
Round the world you'll get exotic foods Wash it down with different kinds of booze But whether you're in London or off a Kathmandu There is only one thing I'll recommend to you Now Bristol City football side down Ashton Gate They are the pride cause they all train on good old cheddar cheese Cockles, winkles, wilkes and crab, fish and chips in a paper bag Just don't compare with good old cheddar cheese Round the world you get exotic